Hey guys, I hope you're loving the Making Bank episodes. Please make sure you guys like and share these episodes as well as comment below for the guests. They love to come back and interact with you. And I really appreciate you watching and listening to Making Bank. So thank you. You are are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Excited for today's guest, James P. Friel, Jesse Elder, Justin, Donald, Sean McCormick, Scott Lind, Rich Tavini, Bobby Castro. What's the best way, you know, one, so your employees are maximizing productivity throughout the day, or I guess holding them accountable to make sure, you know, they're thinking outside the box, but also critical thinking and, you know, being able to make those decisions so they're not waiting on you. Yeah, I think, I think the more clear people are, on what the outcome is, the more they're going to find the best path for them to get there. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, in, uh, Jack Welch's book winning, he said, you can never over communicate the goals of your company. Like you, like people cannot be too clear on what you're, on what you're trying to achieve. Right. And it's gotta be simple. It can't be, you know, we're trying to do this and this and this and this and this and this. And people are like, oh my God, like my head's going to explode, right? It's got to be, you know, we are trying to get a thousand customers a day or we are trying to get like this. Like what is the, what is the thing that everyone can rally behind and be centered behind? And so like, if they're clear on the goal and then they're clear on what, what contribution you expect from them towards that goal, I think that that is like 80% of getting the most out of people because if you don't have those things frankly it doesn't matter how much people are working or it doesn't matter how busy they are or what they're doing cuz it's productivity and activity are two totally different things right productivity is like are we actually producing the result that we want to produce activity is like dude, I could go take the dog for a walk and I could be busy walking the dog all day and that's activity. Right. And so I think, I think being clear on those things is fundamental to making sure that you're getting the most out of the people that are working for you. Yeah, no, that's, and I, I like that. It's uh, good to have uh, and make sure those, you know, those people are, I, I guess, product, you know, being productive, you know, throughout the day. As, but also maximizing it and be able to make those decisions on their own and having that super clear vision or focus, you know, for them so they they know right where that's at. Yeah, and I'll say I'll say one other thing, man. As entrepreneurs and CEOs, like sometimes we can become real bottlenecks mm. for the people on sure. our teams, right? And you know, and I've 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 identified there's like three bottlenecks that we can show up as. We can show up as a creative bottleneck. Because like we have a vision that's not well articulated yet and people mm. don't know like what we want. Right. We can be um an authority bottleneck. Like we're 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 like putting ourselves in a position where like, oh well, I have to make the decisions for this, 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 and this, and and not properly delegating authority. And then we can be a task bottleneck, which is the lowest level, but it's like sometimes we actually need to get things done for other people to get things done. And so, you know, it, it's it's all great to say that 
We need to make our teams more productive. But if we're showing up as one of those three bottlenecks, that's slowing things down. The team's only going to be as productive as, uh, you know, they, as, as we're enabling them to be. I knew you do a lot of consulting and working with a lot of top CEOs and companies and things like that. What's kind of been that common theme that you found the biggest challenge with all these people are, and then kind of what is that success theme that you've kind of found with working with them? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest challenge is every, every single person that I've worked with has a big vision for what they want to create, right? They're like, I want, you know, I want my company to look like this. I want, you know, I want to make this kind of impact. I want to make this kind of income. And that's, that's inspiring, right? Like it's inspiring to be with somebody who, who wants that. The, the thing that kind of slows that whole system down is you, you don't go from vision to execution, right? And the analogy that I use is like, if you said, Hey, I've got this beautiful dream home that I want to build. Like the last thing in the world you would do the next day after you had that idea is back up to your lot and start like unloading lumber and start like hammering nail nails into the wood. Right. Right. You're like, or pouring concrete or doing anything like you'd never build your dream home without going from vision to blueprint to Mm. execution. Right. And, and people want to build their dream business by going from vision to like, okay, get it all done. And, and that there's a gap there. And it's something I call results architecture. It's like, how are you going to get the result? Like, what is, what is the plan to be able to do that? And, you know, using some of the things that we talked about today really simplifies that. But I would say that's the biggest, the biggest challenge in, in, in most of these top entrepreneurs, like hitting the levels that they want as quickly as they want. It's like, you can't skip steps, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's zero, zero, exactly zero homes in the architectural digest magazine that didn't have a blueprint before they were built. Right. Zero. That's true. <laughs> right. Right. And so it's like, why, why are we getting so carried away with our business and like not thinking through like that same process? So it's like that, that high level of vision, you know, is, is awesome, but it can be a blessing and a curse at the same time. If you just like pull the, pull the trigger and, and start building stuff without knowing what you're building. I learned very early on in life, not to trust anything, but to test mm. everything. And when somebody would tell me something that would sound good, I immediately began to like run it through this filter of qualification. Is this person qualified by their example, not by what they are, are just saying or, or showing me? I want to see how it performs under pressure. So somebody would, sure. you know, when I opened my martial arts school and people were wanted to teach me sales and teach me marketing, first thing I would say is like, show me your attendance list. And I want to see how many people took class from you last week. And if you have more than me, I'm happy to listen to you. If you have less than me, you're not qualified. This whole concept of testing versus trusting led me to test and question everything. And by the time I was in my early 20s, I had aggressively split tested many different paradigms, belief systems, theologies, ideologies, spiritual practices. I explored every major religion and most of the minor ones. I was a vegan. I was a carnivore. I I was obsessed with just testing what works better. And all of a sudden I realized that there is no one way. There's only the way that's right for me. 
And then that is what led me to discover the power of sovereignty. And, and along with that is, is a, in a deep, constant respect for the sovereignty of others and that someone else is absolutely uh, entitled to their perception, their perspective, their beliefs, their worldview. And it's not my job to try and correct that unless it infringes upon my physical experience or my life experience mm. at which point I don't need to fight back. I just need to clearly assert the boundaries so that they're then clear about where I stand. And it became the most peaceful way to live life because then I was so free to be myself and follow my own purpose without the fear of judgment of others because they're free to have their experience. What's that one thing you want to leave everybody with that I should have asked you? I will say something specifically for entrepreneurs. You know, we're, we're, it's no secret that we're in times of, of uh, rapid transformation right now. And everybody's been saying that for probably the last 50 years, right? Oh, things are changing fast. Well, faster seatbelts because it's to get even more chaotic. So the best thing that you can do, um, and, and I believe we are headed into the most abundant couple of decades that our, our world has ever seen. There's also going to be a lot of division. You know, we're already seeing this race and masks and vaccines, and we're seeing all this division, uh, the best thing that you can do as an entrepreneur, from my perspective, is to put yourself first in terms of your mental health, your emotional wellness, because in, in times of chaos, it's the calm, uh, resilient person who becomes a leader by default. You know, it's like if, if, if everybody's standing up and all of a sudden 99 people jump backwards and one person's just standing there, they instantly become the leader. And whatever they start doing and however they're operating, other people are going to begin to follow. So uh, it's a strained example. But for an entrepreneur, you, you are automatically a leader, maybe not in your communication or your social media presence, um, but in your, in your approach to a truly self-authorized life. This is why I have always had the highest respect for true entrepreneurs, people who, who are willing to enter into an, an environment financially where there is zero guarantee you know there's no ceiling on how much you can you can create but there's no floor either and so you know, there's no limit to how, how far you can fall and i love those people um i am very proud to be one of those people and i think that because we don't have any sense of entitlement uh and we're we're willing to operate only by our own value creation uh, the number one thing you have to do is to put yourself at the top of the list nourish yourself feed yourself do whatever it takes to keep yourself in, in peak performance because that's ultimately what the world needs now and what the world is going to need even more of. Uh, last thing I'll say is that you're, there, there are people listening to this who are going to earn incredible fortunes in industries that have not even been invented yet. And so don't get too attached to what you're doing and how you're making money now. Your real value is your ability to perceive, your ability to, to detach, your ability to go deep where you need to, and to be able to develop that skill uh, at, on demand. Phenomenal, man. Maybe give us kind of the first simple, first few simple steps, somebody that's like wanting to start to move into lifestyle investing and kind of give them a, those, those steps on what they can start doing now today. Um, maybe if they have up to 50,000 or over 50,000 to kind of break it down for them. Yeah. And before investing in something, I actually think it's more important to figure out what it costs you to live. Mm, so to okay. me, step one, isn't let's invest money to me. Step one is, Hey, what does it cost me to survive? Like at a bare minimum, what does my rent or mortgage cost? 
What does, you know, what's a bare minimum I can get by on food? What are my utilities? What are my car payments? Whatever it is that is like worst case scenario, I need this to maintain life, not your current quality of living. Right. This is literally just to get by. Just to get by. Okay. And what does that look like on a monthly basis? So that to me is step one. Step two is then figuring out what does it cost me to live my life today? What's my lifestyle Mm. today? Okay. And not on an annual basis, again, on a monthly basis, because I want to know how cash flow works. Right. I'm less concerned with, you know, like if you tell me you earn $200,000 or $100,000, that is less relevant than if you told me you make $8,000 a month. Mm. Right. Because you can figure out and it costs you six thousand dollars a month to live. Or what if it costs you nine thousand dollars a month, but you're only making eight thousand? You know, so like those numbers to me matter. And most people look at, you know, their their income, their salary, their, uh, you know, distributions they take, whatever it is. They look at this and they say, gosh, this is such a big number. How can I ever replace it? But if you break it down on the monthly basis, it's way easier than what you think. It's just it's not as formidable of a number as what you think. You know, I remember breaking down my numbers for the first time and I was like, oh, really? That's it? <laughs> it, it seemed like it was so much tougher. Like that, that big number was a little intimidating. You do it per month and I only got to do that. OK, you know, it's not a slam dunk yet, but it's it gave me confidence. Like, right. I felt like, oh, I can do this. Cool. So yeah, so then breaking down your cost of living of exactly what it takes you to get by every month and then where you are. And then from there, then are you looking to say, okay, cool. Any extra money that you have from that or above that is what you're shifting over then to for your investment? Yeah. So what I, so, you know, I, I've always been pretty aggressive with what I have saved and invested from what I earned. You know, when I had a job and when I had a business, I would generally save from 20 to 50% a year. You know, okay. in my beginning years, I was more on the 20% side, 25% side. And it's funny because I could have saved more then because I didn't have as many expenses. I, just no one ever talked to me. I, I never thought right. about it. I, I should have <laughs> saved more. Like my cost of living was so low back then. I, I don't know what I did with it. I spent it on something. Yep. <laughs> uh, and then later on in life, you, you become kind of accustomed to the lifestyle that you live. Often you can become a slave to the income that you make or slave to the business that you've built. And so it becomes harder if you haven't been disciplined early. You can still do it. Uh, but I got really aggressive and started saving half of everything that I made. And uh, that w- went into different investments. And so I think first, you know, getting some sort of security in, in like three months of of income saved and and then from there figuring out some cash flow opportunities. I still love real estate. I think that's a great first investment. I also love debt deals. You know, generally with debt deals, you're going to get consistent monthly cash flow or some sort of consistent cash flow. So I like that. But often you don't have equity unless you negotiate it. So that's right. a trade-off. Whereas okay. real estate, you're going to get some equity. And then you've got operating companies. And I love investing in companies too. With the right structures, you can get cash flow on that and you can get your, your capital back quickly and do so in a very uh, risk-free or low-risk way. So, I mean, each of these exists, but I think from the standpoint of like, hey, what's an easy first step? Probably something in real estate, some sort of rental. Maybe it's a single family home rental. Maybe it's a mobile home park. Maybe it's investing in a syndication that's doing a multifamily deal. Mm. Um, it, it could be anything. But I just think you want to get yourself out there and take a step forward in some way, shape or form, but run it by 
professional, run it by people that you know are smart and that you trust if you are not experienced in investing. Because I, I find that entrepreneurs have a really hard time making the leap to being an investor. Hey, you're right. Oh, yeah. Usually entrepreneurs have such a great skill set and they're kings and queens of the world. Uh, and they think that they're going to have the same success when they invest, but they fall flat on their faces, you know, 99% of the time. It is a tough transition. It's just a different skill set. Uh, and so I, I see that too often. So if I were, you know, if I were an entrepreneur, as I was, it, you know, earlier in my career, uh, I would recommend getting advisors and, you know, smart professionals around you to support you and, and, and really help educate you on how to not lose money. Awesome, man. You know, I think that's a key point you made. I mean, if it's no longer working for you, <laughs> you have to reassess. Don't continue to stay down that path yeah. and then wonder what happened three or four years down the road. Like, hey, why did this just all fall apart around me? Yeah. And we all know somebody like that. Yeah. That was kind of some of the challenge. And it, it's interesting how it all boils down around a lot of it around the passion. So you said like fear and passion are, are those two areas. It's you get into it and you're working hard, but then I think you lose why you originally started. Yeah, you do. You lose, you lose track, right? Another boat, another home is not going to fill yeah. that, that, that void. Um, you know, uh, another watch, right. another car. It's just not going to do it. It's not, there's, there's, and, and, and everybody's heard these isms, you know, these, uh, about, you know, you know, more money doesn't necessarily more mean more happiness, but here's why is that you get, you get used to this lifestyle. You get used to this churn of your money, your income, you get used to, to sort of, you know, um, spending money on things that you think are going to make you happy. And what is missing from that is like deep, meaningful connection with the people mm. that you love. What's yeah. missing from, from you feeling good about your life is, um, getting a really good night's sleep and waking up without feeling like shit. Yeah. You know what? What makes life worth living is increasing your uh, your spiritual awareness. You know, yep. to 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 do all of it. And I and I believe that we are all capable of having our cake and eating it too. We can we can be really successful in all of these different areas of your life. But if you don't even know where to start, if you don't even know. Well, I haven't thought about the eight categories, you know, money, family, environment, health and vitality, fun and recreation, romance and intimacy, spiritual development and life purpose. It's like you never heard that before and you're 55 and you're, a, you know, you've been making millions of dollars every year for years and years and years. If you've never really thought about that, then it's like, oh man, yeah, I'm, I'm lacking in a couple of places. <laughs> yeah. Where do I go from here? And, um, getting that, getting that passion back for living the kind of life that you want is it takes, takes work. Honestly, it takes a lot of work and it takes someone like a coach to help you see that. Cause otherwise all your buddies, all the yes men and yes women that you have around mm -hmm. you in your life that, that are saying, Hey, you're doing great. You're doing great. Keep going, keep going. That are, that are now involved in your economic ecosystem that just want, they just got to keep shoving coal in the fire because you're paying their bills and they're living off of you. And this, and a lot of people don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear this. All your employees, your assistant, you know, to a certain extent, some of your friends, sometimes like your spouse is relying on you to continue to crush it. Right. And so when you say, Hey, I'm going to slow down, people are like, what? Don't do that. Like, 
the people around you, and then this is something that, that this is a really hard lesson for many people to learn. There are a lot of people around you that don't want to see you be happy. Mm, true. They don't want to see you happy. They don't want to see you calm and relaxed and refreshed and smiling and sitting on your couch and enjoying your family. They don't want to see that. They don't want to see that because they're reliant on you to continue to crush, to continue to hustle, to continue to generate income because they depend on it. And that's scary. That that that's really tough. And and when when people sit down and think, oh man, okay, well, who in my life, who in my life is actually kind of just in my gravitational pull, but not right. really there to help me and see me grow. Uh, it's, it's a scary thing, but you better do it now. Cause by the time you're 60, you're going to think, Holy shit, <laughs> where, what have I been doing? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's sobering. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've found from, you know, amateur investors investing in art? Yeah. You know, I, I wrote a, uh, I wrote a blog post on this on the masterworks website. I, I think the most common mistake that people make uh, is they they tend to go after brand name artists. And I'll, I'll use Picasso as an example. Sure. So when when an early collector first starts collecting, they know Picasso, they've heard of Picasso, they they see an object by Picasso, and they buy that object because of Picasso. But to to really make money in the art market, you have to buy the right artist, but also the right object. And I, I think if you look at Picasso's market, it's crazy. It's there's something like sixty six thousand objects he made during his lifetime, right? he was a hugely prolific guy. Like he just churned out art. So obviously all 66,000 objects are not going to be highly valuable, but new collectors, I, I think often make that mistake. Okay. Uh, and then, and I mean, just from me personally, looking at your website and going through, maybe kind of fill us in kind of like what you guys are looking for, because it, I mean, it looked like a lot of the art that you guys were acquiring and then, you know, investing in and then selling, I mean, had some significant profit margins. Yeah, I mean, we so we, we're we're relatively sophisticated. I think we're the most sophisticated of anyone in the art market in terms of how we think about buying a painting. So to us, that that's really a two-step process. The first process is we run um, a bunch of proprietary data through our research team and try to understand which segments of the art market are appreciating most quickly. And usually, that that leaves us with a specific artist list or artist markets that we're focused on. And then once we have our artists, and this year I think we're focused on. 40 or 45 different artists. Okay. We then take those artists and we hand them off to our acquisition team that goes out and finds examples by those artists. So I think this morning I was looking, I think we have 2,100 examples from those 40 or 45 different artists. Oh, wow. So we're buying less than, than 1% of what we see now. Um, but that's generally how, how we think about, you know, finding the right object is we rely on data to understand what segments are appreciating. And then our acquisitions team just tries to get in front of as many as many deals as possible and then and then buy the best that we find. Where do you see with what you guys are going and uh, obviously with the massive changes over the last over 2020, uh, like where what direction do you see the art market heading? And then, you know, and then is this a good opportunity for people to, you know, position themselves? I mean, obviously, with potential changes in dollar valuations and, you know, things like that. Um, where, yeah, where, I mean, what, what should we be looking to do, I guess? <laughs> yeah, we, we've had a whole bunch of people confidentially, you know, I can't, I can't name names that are sort of big name investors reach out uh, that have this thesis that that real assets are going to skyrocket in value because of the devaluation of the dollar in particular. 
and we're seeing a lot of investors sign up under that under that th- that same thesis. You know, I don't I don't personally know how to think about that exactly. Like, you know, I'm not um, that's not that's not my skill set. But I but I do think that um, that there is, and we've shown this from a research perspective, there is an inverse correlation between our prices and interest rates. So it, it does seem logical that our prices will continue to go up if we're effectively living in this interest-free environment. But the other thing about the art market that's a little bit unique, it's a little bit harder to, to understand, is that it, it's, it's, a, it's a global market, right? So you can buy sure. a $10 million Bosque out of New York and you can fly it to Hong Kong and sell it in Hong Kong. So when we hmm. think about the top collectors that really support the $60 billion market, they're living all around the world. The US is only, only 25% of the art market. So it is one of the few asset classes that is that is truly global. As you guys started to then have this higher selection process and people are starting to wash out, what were some of the things that you were finding? Because when I in, uh, read your bio and everything, it was like you, the guys that you didn't think were going to make it were the ones that were making it through. And then the people that were like, oh, yeah, these guys got this were the ones that were not. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the problem was we, were, we, had, we had constrained ourselves previously to focusing on skills-based assessment. So just to kind of level the bubble here, skills are not inherent to our nature. We learn how to do things like ride a bike, throw a ball, or drive a car. We're not sure. born with the ability to do those things. We can also learn skills peripherally. Right? If you and I sit at a computer for six months, we're going to learn how to type. Okay, that's what a skill right. is. Skills direct behavior. They tell us what to do in specific situations. Again, shoot a gun, ride a bike, drive a car, type, ride a, ride a note or whatever. Um, and therefore, they can be very easily assessed, measured, and seen. Okay, this is why most selection processes, or hiring processes, or when people put together dream teams, are based upon skills. You can see how many sales a guy has, or how well how well someone graphically designs, or what type type of top graduate someone. Is. Skills are very easy to see. So usually, dream teams are put together by the best people, and the best usually is defined by skills. The problem is that when when we only go by skills, skills don't tick, dictate necessarily how we're going to operate when things go haywire and the environment becomes uncertain. That's when we start leaning on attributes. Attributes, on the other hand, are inherent to our nature. We're actually born with levels of perseverance, patience, adaptability. We can see it in small kids. Um, we develop them over time, certainly, but we can see those things. They inform our behavior rather than the dictate. So in other words, they, they tell us uh, my my and your levels of resiliency and adaptability and perseverance inform the way we learned how to ride a bike when we fought when we fell off ten times doing it. Okay, right. Um, so they inform our behavior because they're hidden in the background. They are very difficult to assess, measure, and test, and they are only the most visible during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because again, if if you're in a situation where someone can apply a known skill, you don't see the attributes that are running behind them. Sure. If you go throw someone in a situation that that. There's, it's completely uncertain. No one knows what to do. There's really no skill to get through it. That's when you start to see attributes, right? When we were in SEAL training, you know, running on the boat, running with their boat on their head doesn't take a lot of, quote, skill, right? For hours, it takes attributes. Sitting in the surf zone and freezing doesn't take a lot of skill, but it takes the attributes not to quit. So I am certain that, you know, there's so many facets in life where attributes are much more predominant. In the entrepreneur field, which you, which you are uh, steeped in, right? The entrepreneurial field is steeped with uncertainty. You know, you are right. you are running you are running through a pathway of the unknown, which means the this is why startups, I believe, are so fast and furious because they're running on attributes the whole time. It's only after mm. they get running that they have to sit down and say, "Oh, wait a second, okay, what do we actually need here?" <laughs> and then you have to start <laughs> yeah. then you have to start hiring the CFO and the COO and, the, and all the all the all the things all the skills that you need to actually run a company. But getting the company started is is largely, I would imagine. 
based on attributes. And that's really where it was fascinating to me because this type of behavior happens based on our kind of innate qualities and what we show up with. What's one last thing you're like, oh man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me this, but he didn't. <laughs> what do you want to leave everybody with? <laughs> well, you, know, you asked me a bunch of cool stuff. The only thing I'll add and leave everybody with is this, and, and, and it's part of the title of the book. I say optimal performance for a very specific reason. We are, uh, as so we're, we're, we're in kind of ensconced in this business world of peak performance. Everybody wants right. to, everybody's looking at the athletes, they're looking at the Red Bull folks, and they're looking at Navy SEALs, and they're saying, hey, how can we, how can we peak, be peak, 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 right? Um, and I always got this question, hey, you, you SEALs, you're the, you're the best peak performers in the world. And I always disagreed with them. And this is, this is something that I disagreed with fundamental because, because peak performance is simply an apex. And it's mm. an apex from which you can only come down, right? Right. Peak performance has to be planned for, scheduled, trained for and uh, and uh, and and conditioned right so the the professional athlete say football player uh, plans his entire week to peak for 3 hours on sunday okay right. because that's what he can do seals were never peak performers entrepreneurs are not peak performers okay normal people actually aren't peak performers the reason is we are optimal performers optimal performance is how can i do the very best i can in the moment with what i've got okay mm. that very best might look like peak. It might look like flow states. It might sure. look all pretty and stuff. And we know Steven. I mean, you know, all, all yep. it might look like all that stuff, right? It also might look like, hey, I'm just trudging step by step through the muck right now. I'm just making it minute by minute, right? I'm getting through COVID. I'm getting through cancer. Right. I'm getting through this this uh, uh, this uh, the, this money money making process to build my business. It feels awful. It seems awful. But I'm going forward. I'm I'm just stepping forward. That is P, that's that is optimal performance. You are doing the best you can. And so as human beings, we have we we do the best. We are we we I think we do our best um, when we understand that our best is sometimes step by step. And if we understand that, we can start monitoring our behavior and saying and not kicking ourselves in the ass when we're not peak or we eat right. the wrong thing or we get off routine or whatever. It's like hey, listen, I'm just moving. As long as I'm moving, as long as I'm going forward. Oh, and by the way, as long as I understand that sometimes success like in the rock climbing <laughs> example sometimes success sometimes a way to get up to that peak <laughs> is i have to actually go down to the right because uh, i because right. i have to find the right footholds right yes i can't go up that way so i have to go down so sometimes your best is actually moving backwards <laughs> you know yeah. or, or to the side <laughs> and so if we start understanding that we still we start feeling better this is where discipline starts to uh, go come into play perseverance all these attributes we execute our attributes for optimal performance not peak performance um and peak is great when you can get it but strive for optimal obviously your pma positive mental attitude i mean i think that's huge and i know just growing up that's always how i kind of was fortunately i read like tony robbins unlimited power and awaken the giant think and grow rich so that's kind of what got that spark and you know for me but kind of give us maybe the breakdown i know you kind of have like a whole process for your pma and everything and um i think i think that's great especially at times right now and you know with a lot of uncertainty and things and all that out there, you know, I think people need to have that or have a way to look at it and break it down and understand how to utilize that. Here's a solution for every situation, good, bad, or ugly. We, when I exited my business and I sold about a year and a half ago for that $1 billion and there was no stock, there was no earnout. It was basically for my share. They gave me all cash. We created that by having a pot. We created a culture with hundreds of employees of regardless what the situation is to spend time in the morning because we're all exposed you and I to our family that if you have an argument maybe one of your children or maybe something's going on you take that to work you sure. take it to your business and vice versa Josh whatever's going on work you take it home 
whether you like it or not. So Sophie and I figured that these two highways are aligned and we had to bring it together. And we used to show our coworkers, I don't call them employees, man. I'm so proud that we created millionaires within our organization because we scaled by making others successful. We thought about others first and sooner or later that beautiful Hawaiian wave showed up in our life with financial freedom. It comes. Right. And this PMA, man, it's not, it's corny for most, but every morning I wake up at five in the morning. I work, I work on myself at least an hour and a half to two hours. I know I am going to a dark world. Everyone's talking about COVID. Yeah. Millions of people are out of job, whatever they, but there's a solution. Right. I, I thrive in these markets. The last six months, seven months, Sophie and I have made multiple seven figures by taking advantage of these dark moments because we've seen solutions. And I see so many people stuck and they don't realize, okay, if you're a waiter, like Bobby was when I had my first child, I was a waiter at Rusty Pelican, started my business that I sold for a billion. If you're a waiter, you're in trouble. You need to shift and adapt with the change. Do not stay there sinking and just moaning. If you're a housekeeper holiday in, you have to shift. Maybe it's your time to open your business to start cleaning houses in a new way where people mm. want this right. to be done the correct way cleaning. If you're a waiter, maybe it's in, in home dining. Do not sit there because Bobby Castro used to sit there too in my own misery and I was completely stuck for so many years until I said, there's a solution. The solution is us. I am my problems. I am my creation. I am my solutions. I don't depend on anybody. I don't expect nothing from you, her, them. It's my responsibility to be my own leader. And how I built my business was to create other leaders with that same PMA. If they don't buy into the PMA, they're not for me. I cannot scale. I cannot create with others unless they have the same core values. But as a leader, it's my job to instill that culture on a consistent basis. So many entrepreneurs do not pay attention to their employees at a low level. They all want to talk about the managers, managers, managers. Sure. They're forgetting about the infantry. That's so important. It's the foundation of your business. Bobby, how'd you sell the billion dollar business? No investors, no nobody, nothing. I paid attention to this level, man. And even today, I'm so humble, Josh. I don't even feel like Sophie and I are worth $300 million personal net worth. I don't even feel like we have a $400 million real estate portfolio. I am so busy creating because we have a 100-year legacy plan, Sophie and I. We've hired life coaches for this. Within 100 years, 100 years from now, we want somebody to say Papa and Mimi. My grandbabies call me Papa. They call my <laughs> my wife Mimi. That's awesome. We want somewhere in 100 years from now because of what we built and because we're sacrificing instead of being a flash dancer, right. buying the yachts, buying this and, 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 and living this lifestyle because we can. I'm thinking about 100 years from now because technology, it's amazing what we're creating, but we are creating what's going to destroy a lot of us. And unless you get on high alert to say, my gosh, I'm falling behind. Technology, I am so falling behind because I'm so busy on Instagram, looking, looking, I'm right. my non-refundable minutes, that by the time you're 45, 50, 30, whatever, you're gonna say, what happened? What happened was you were distracted. Hmm. I am Josh Felber. You are watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary.
Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.